Welcome to another episode of the Cubic Report. I'm glad that you joined us today for episode number 36. My guest today is my nephew, Colin Kubik. He was in Ukraine at the start of the Russian invasion that began on the 24th of February, 2022. He has lived in different parts of Ukraine for the past six years. He speaks Ukrainian and Russian. At the moment, he is finishing up his bachelor's degree from Ukrainian Catholic University, where he is studying psychology. He is the only grandchild of Nina and Igor, who has decided to return to his roots. Igor and Nina, of course, are my parents. So, Colin, welcome to the Cubic Report podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Victor. Okay. I'm just so happy to have my nephew here. Very delighted because of his experience. And we have actually been to Ukraine at the same time. I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward to sharing my experience, and I think I have a lot of interesting insight into what's going on in Ukraine, and I hope that I can share uh, people's experiences, not just my experience, but Ukrainians that I know with your uh, with the, your listeners. Sure, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. We haven't really talked too much or rehearsed this. I know that you are continually communicating back there. And of course, we have worked with similar people. In fact, that's a good question that I'd like to start with. How did you become involved with Ukraine, going there for the first time? And what piqued your interest? And and uh, how did you get involved? Yeah, so actually, I'll start, I think it was in like the fifth grade or fourth grade, you came and visited my school and you talked about Ukraine, you talked about Chernobyl. And that was the really the first time I was, I, I kind of learned a little bit about Ukraine. And then let's fast forward to about 2012. I had my first opportunity to go to Zakarpatia, Transcarpathia, and work in a uh, work in a camp for children that came from unfortunate uh, circumstances. Maybe they were homeless, or they came from families broken families. And so we worked. Uh, I worked there for two weeks in that kids camp. And then I would return every single summer to this camp. After that, I, I was very, after the first time I went to Ukraine and visited Transcarpathian, and I also visit, visited relatives, I became very interested in the language and the culture and decided to start learning the language. And soon after that, I actually switched to Russian because it was just, it's a more widespread language and it can become more useful than Ukrainian. After that, I wanted to really learn the language. I really wanted to learn more about the culture. A couple of weeks in the summer, it was very difficult to get that long-term experience to really dive into the culture, into the language, and be with the people, be with Ukrainians. So I had the opportunity through your organization to go up to Chernihiv, which is probably about 100 miles north of Kiev. And I worked there in a center for uh, children uh, with disabilities. It was a rehabilitation center. I worked there for a year. Um, I was a volunteer in that center. After that, I decided to keep learning the language. I wasn't very satisfied with my language learning. And I also was already more interested in learning Ukrainian and wanted to stay in Ukraine. I found another opportunity to volunteer with the Peace Corps. I was in the Peace Corps for two years, was in a small village down south, southwest near Moldova, a little village of about 1,500 people. I worked in the school there, ran an after-school program for the students in that school, helped with English, also wrote grants, and did other projects around the country during my time in the Peace Corps. After the Peace Corps, I still <laughs> felt that I needed to stay in Ukraine and wanted to find more opportunities. I also 
at that time kind of wanted to go back to school, get a degree. And so I started doing, looking around and I found a Ukrainian Catholic University, which is a private university in Lviv, uh, Western Ukraine, about 50 miles up from the Polish border. So I decided to enroll there and study psychology. And I am right now in my fourth year. I have one semester left of school and I'll be getting my bachelor's in psychology. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. There's nobody who has gone to Ukraine who has adopted it uh, as as deeply as you have, even people who have other you know, Ukrainian roots and has wanted to learn the language. Now, you started, as you said, with the children's camp or street children's program that LifeNets had sponsored for a while. And I remember you're asking about going over there. And, you know, we typically had anywhere from four to six to eight people going over every summer to teach English as a second language. And my brother, your uncle, you know, went over there at least uh, three or four times, I believe. And I believe your two sisters have gone over there as well. So we've had quite a bit of um, involvement in that area. And I remember your father calling me uh, one time and asking if there was any other opportunities in Ukraine. And I said, hey, I think that there's one that he would really like. And that's working with Chernihiv with a children's rehabilitation center, revival, the, the Vidrojnya mm -hmm. center up in Chernihiv, as you had mentioned. Not only did you go there, but you actually lived there for a year. So that was very interesting. Are, are there any more words that you can say? We could kind of backtrack a little bit chronologically. If you're starting with the children's camp, uh, do you have any contact with those people? Because we still do. Uh, my wife, Bev, and I still talk to some of the, the street children. Of course, they're grown up, you know, they're in their early 30s. They're married, have children. You know, we really rejoice in being able to see how their lives have developed. But do you have contact there and maybe give some impressions from your working with those people there and the children in particular? Yeah, I, I, I have contact. I would say it's not it's not very constant. Maybe once or twice a year I connect with um, friends, and a lot of them um, actually are in Europe. Um, I don't know many people that are left in Vinohradiv um, still that I, I have connections with, or they've moved outside of the city. But I remember coming to Ukraine, and I didn't really know what to expect. And the area that we were working in, in Transcarpathia, is a very different area than uh, the rest of Ukraine. There's a very uh, different type of population there, and it's very even the language is, is quite different from other areas in Ukraine. I still, things that I remember from, I remember <laughs> a lot of things. Um, I, I remember one of the things that kind of sticks to my mind is the way they just treated guests, the way that they brought us in and fed us. It felt like we lived like kings because they were just treating us so kindly. Um, and this wasn't just uh, the people that we worked with, this was just Ukrainians in general. Mm -hmm. You would meet uh, on the streets, and they they were always very friendly to to outsiders, very friendly to people that were just visiting or helping uh, the children in that area. They also knew a lot about the the organization that helped, so they knew we were there for to work with children. Well, I think it's amazing, Colin. I maybe can share this with you here and everybody. How some of these opportunities have come up just in a, in an unplanned way. I know that working with the street children in particular. That was something that started in, uh, well, I had started in about, let's see, I can't remember exactly what year, but about 2001 or so, uh, maybe a little bit off by a few, uh, about a year or two. 
But I remember going over there, working with other people with the churches as I did, and uh, I was asked to come and look at a, a new soup kitchen that was being built, that was being proposed. And I wasn't even that interested in going because I just didn't know if I could take on another project. But I went there and saw street children for the very, very first time, seeing these dirty little kids you know, in the courtyard of an old police station that was being abandoned. And I, I just really felt sorry for them. And I thought, how in the world are we going to be able to do anything in this area? On the internet, I posted a story about these kids and a group from California just very generously offered to support that project, to support the children, to support uh, feeding them for a year. And I was just very touched by that. And that project grew to the point of where we had, we had people going over there and we developed a program for teaching English on top of all the other activities that you were you know, involved in. So I was glad that you joined in with that particular program, Colin. Yeah, no, that was it. That was a major, I mean, blessing for me uh, just to come and be in Ukraine. And where I knew I felt like, oh, I'm going to be here for a while. I don't know in what aspect or how I'm going to keep returning. But I knew that I wanted to continue learning more about Ukraine and in the end live in Ukraine for a while to be able to really learn uh, mm -hmm. about kind of my roots and uh, where where our family comes from. Yeah, I might just say, too, is that Western Ukraine, where you were in Hradiv, and also the city of Hust, and you know the other towns around, we're still very actively involved there because that's become a base for helping refugees who are fleeing from Eastern Ukraine and need a place to go. Now, when yep. the war first started, we helped these people transition to Poland, to Slovakia, to Hungary, Romania, to all those countries that are bordering there. And all those countries kind of come together there at Ukraine. And at first, we had a lot of people that we were transporting. Now, that borders aren't as open because the people have taken in, in the other countries, as many people as they really can. Over 10 million Ukrainians have left the country, you know, up to almost 20%, 25% of the population has left. And now we're trying to help people stay in the country in safer areas. And so we work very, very closely with these people. And right now we're very intensively working in that western part of Ukraine in a very crisis time, in the dead of winter, in trying to provide warming shelters, trying to provide ability to you know, bake bread and <laughs> do things you know, to care for those people. And that's all because of the relationships that we have built and in the, that we have built over time, including your coming there and spending time bonding with the people and building a trust. And it's just been you know, wonderful to see us be able to build something as a result of relationships and goodwill. And now yeah. when there's a crisis, we tap into those relationships to find ways to help people. So I thank you very much, Colin, for participating in Western Ukraine. And then, you know, going on to other things, you know, with the Rehabilitation Center that I'd like to talk a little bit more about, and also the Peace Corps and study in Lviv. Yeah, so I'll, I guess we can go on to uh, the re uh, to Vidrodzinya, which is in, which is Ukrainian for revival. Yeah, so uh, Vidrodzinya, I arrived to the revival center um, in 2015, I believe, in the summer of 2015, and I knew zero people in the city of Chernihiv. I didn't know anyone at the center. I only knew through email, possibly, um, and through you, Victor, uh, Dr. P, 
uh, and his wife. I didn't know anyone. So it was very, I was 20 at the time and I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, I just knew that I would show up. I also didn't know the language at the time. And that was one of the biggest challenges was learning the language in a town where you don't know anybody and having to make relationships. And a lot of people didn't speak English, so I was forced to really learn the language. But I showed up there and I was planning to just stay six months. Uh, that was kind of the, 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 the deal at the start with the, the possibility in mind that I could extend it. And I knew after three months that I wanted to stay longer, that I wanted to stay a whole year because of the relationships that I had started forming with people. So I stayed there for a year. I was in the center. I was basically just a utility. I don't know how to say this utility player or a person that could do anything basically in the center as a helper. So I was mm -hmm. extra hands wherever needed. Uh, I had a camera, so I often was the photographer at a lot of the events. A lot of the times there would be guests from England uh, or other European countries or the States, and I would help with translation. Often uh, the translator, she would she would uh, take advantage of me, which I was I was she would often uh, sneak off and say, you can translate for a while. And uh, I struggled with the translation, but I, I did it. And so I was the assistant translator in the center uh, as well. I would help kids. Uh, the kids, they had different, uh, I would say there were different rooms for re rehabilitation. There was also, a, uh, it was somewhat like a preschool, a lot of the uh, students, so they would have different like classrooms and I would help the, the kids get from one class to the other, or if the teacher had to step out, I could watch the kids. So, I, and then I also took part in events. So often there would be, for example, on New Year's, I was Father Frost, Did Moroz, and then uh, there were other events where I had I got to dress up and and kind of play a role in some some games and so that that was kind of a general that's a general kind of summary of my time there and what that looked now, like. Now the children, what was uh, the usually the biggest problem with them health wise? Um, it's hard to say. There was there was children from all there were there were physical disabilities. A lot of it was. I would say in in the younger children, it could have been problem behavior. It could also be uh, autism. There was a lot of children with autism in the center, and then there was Down syndrome children. It was it was basically all all types of disabilities, from physical to mental, and they would spend their time there. A lot of the children, there were there were two kind of functions of the center. One was a daily function for the for kids from the city and they would come and it would be like preschool for them. And then there was the other one that was rehabilitation for people with more severe di disabilities. And a lot of the times they would stay there for two to three weeks and then be off. So there, there were two types of centers there. I could, it's hard to say what, because there were there were all types of disabilities. I couldn't say. Yeah, I know that when I talked to Dr. P, Dr. Pasichnik, that um, after Russia invaded Ukraine the first time, Actually, this war that's going on right now is a continuation of the first invasion, which was in 2014, that they brought in children from the Donbass area and were helping with those areas at that time. And that would have been about the time that you were there, wasn't it? Correct. I don't I don't recall much. I can't I, I honestly can't recall much hearing about kids from the uh, Donbass other than just general were helping them. But I don't remember being involved. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I know that, that they had you know, they were called upon to do that. Because that center that Dr. P built with other doctors was, to me, really a wonderful center by people who really love children. And we, we feel with LifeNet's very, very privileged to have been 
on the ground floor of that center. Actually, we visited with Dr. P before he opened the center. Uh, I was there with another doctor from the United Kingdom, and uh, the center was about to open. We were there in April, and the center opened in June, and this was 10 years after the Chernobyl disaster. And the Chernobyl nuclear power plant is only 35 miles due west of Chernihiv. So that's the location of that center. And I want to say they, they love children, but they also love their community because a lot of the aid that actually comes to the center, it, get, it does get distributed throughout the community. A lot of community organizations work with the Revival Center, with Vidrogenia, to, to help get humanitarian aid throughout the city. I know. I am just, just amazed as to all the aid that's come in caravans, in long caravans from the United Kingdom. You know, they bring it across the English Channel. They, they drive across Poland and they deliver it to the center, which distributes these things out to the community. That center is, is really known all throughout Ukraine as a very premier center, not because of how opulent it is, but because of the attitude, the, the spirit of giving. I mean, the president's wife of Ukraine visited there. Even the president of Ukraine one time visited it. And they've had people from uh, the United Nations, UNICEF, that have come and visited it. So I, I just feel very privileged to have been part of that and also with you, you know, being able to experience it. What types of relationships did you develop while you were working? You actually lived with Dr. P, didn't you? Yeah, so I, I lived in Dr. P's apartment. He spent, uh, he, he lived with uh, Dr. Natalia. They, they lived uh, in the dacha. He lived there with his wife mm -hmm. in the dacha. And I lived in their apartment, which was half a mile away from the center. So I would walk to the center every single morning. I would say in the center, there's a lot of women and they're all, they're all my mom's age. And so I had a lot of mothers taking care of me throughout the center. <laughs> it, was such a, it was a blessing to have them and it was always fun to be around them. But in, in one of the relationships that I, I formed there was with my friend Kolya. He, is, he works in the computer room. I would spend a lot of time with him and we would be talking all the time about life and everything and we got really close uh, and his wife works at the center too so we we still uh, maintain contact actually on when after the after the full-scale invasion started after the, uh, on february 24th i left i was in europe germany on it was it was my birthday on march 18th and i hadn't heard from kolya for a couple weeks and i saw his phone or the last time he was active was march 5th and this was right around the time when there was russians surrounding Chernihiv and I was getting very I was I was very um, worried about him and he called me on my birthday in Germany and I fortunately had my Ukrainian sim card in and he called me to wish me a happy birthday even though he he had to kind of go out in the field his, his phone he could charge it with his car and uh, he had to go find cell service to, to wish me a happy birthday and it was I was very emotional at that time when he called me because I also I was worried about him and we talked for a good 10 minutes but it was that was one of the that's the kind of relationship I had formed and he, he's I haven't talked to him for a couple of weeks that's just one of that's one example of, of a relationship where the Ukrainian has has done something for me or and just calling me on my birthday but in those in those conditions uh, and, but many many I have, I have a lot of Ukrainian friends that I think would do the same thing uh, I think Ukrainians are like that they're amazing how closely get to you personally uh, relationships that we often don't have as much in this country I, I know that they're always there to wish me a happy birthday I mean I, I don't 
necessarily remember their birthdays. I do remember Dr. P's wife and, and him. Maybe I send them greetings, but they send me a nice card, you know, in the mail. Even now, with the war going on, they remember us. It it's almost brings tears to my eyes as to how they really deeply care uh, mm -hmm. for, for, for the relationships that we've had for decades now. And it's this relationships and bonding with them that is kind of fueling our ability to be able to care for them. Chernihiv was badly bombed in the first days of the war. I mean, hundreds of people were killed you know, in the center. And you, we know people who live in some of those high-rise apartments there that you see bombed out where entire floors are destroyed. And you wonder, well, did so-and-so die? And fortunately, from what I understand, only one of the workers at the clinic died. That yeah. was their accountant. But with all the Russians surrounding them being so close to the border and the fact that our work with them began because of the Chernobyl invasion, the, the, the Chernobyl disaster. It was Chernobyl that brought us there to do the type of work that we did. And now, 25 years later, we have another disaster. I mean, it isn't fair <laughs> here that they're surrounded by and bombed by Russia and the outcome is still uncertain as to what will happen. Yeah, and then I, when it comes to Chernihiv, we can, maybe we can talk about, I, I have friends in Chernihiv, but they're not really connected to the center. Um, I don't know if you will. Sure, sure, tell, tell us about, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I, when I was in Chernihiv, I found a, a church there, and I, there, was, there was about five guys, we were all the same age, and I, I became friends with them, and one of them, though the war started, I was in contact with him, and I remember him, he would send me voice messages, or he would write to me, and this was a couple of days after the war started, and he said he was waiting in line to give blood in Chernihiv, and then he just said uh, he felt so alive, and it felt, it was very, um, <laughs> that was another emotional moment, but like to, to hear someone to say that, that they felt so alive, and they felt, I think a lot of Ukrainians felt that too, and there was a motivation not just to save themselves, but also to save Ukraine and to really mobilize the the population and and every single person took part in that and was and that my friend who who was giving blood that day he also he was bummed because he didn't have a car because if you have a car you can distribute humanitarian aid uh, easier but he was just riding around on his bike uh, with grocery bags driving around or riding his bike around the city delivering bread delivering whatever he could to to older people who couldn't go out so that's he he's one another example one of my other friends and I helped him he lived in Kiev he he moved from Chernihiv to Kiev and he his wife left the day of the invasion with their 3 month old or 4 month old young young baby and he was driving into hot, hot spots. Um, and I believe he was driving around in Kharkiv region and he was driving around in Chernihiv region to deliver humanitarian aid to places and then evacuate people from those places. And their church, they worked around the clock to get people out and get humanitarian aid in. One of their trucks or one of their vans hit a mine. No one was injured in that, or someone might have been injured, but no one was killed in that incident. But he was risking his life every single day to, to bring humanitarian aid and get people out. Let me ask you right now, with the cold, with the power grid being so mauled and damaged and power outages being the rule rather than the exception, do you hear from them right now with the conditions as they are with freezing? I haven't heard about uh, when it comes to temperatures. I fortunately 
but fortunately a lot of the stuff I hear are more about the electricity and not being able to use the internet, uh, which is a good thing for the, it's better than freezing. Um, but the, the temperatures there, I think are, haven't, I, they have been pretty mild and they haven't had deep freezes where they've had long, long periods of really cold weather in the cities. They, the problem might be bigger than in the villages because most villages there's wood heating and it's pretty easy to heat your house if you don't have gas. Mm -hmm. But but I haven't heard I haven't heard of big big issues when it came to when it comes to heating yet. I know that at the center recently they had problem with water. You know, when you have a hundred children and when you have staff on top of that, you know, you have to have water. <laughs> you know, to... One of the things that I do hear more about is, is, is water. Yeah, and what they've done now is they've drilled a well, a pretty deep well, uh, about 500 feet deep. You know, they're at the center itself, you know, to be able to have their own water. What are, uh, can you tell me, and you're talking to Kolya there, you know, it's amazing that the people have to do more than just survive in a center like that when you have children who absolutely are not involved with the war, aren't even aware of, of a war even going on, and you have to care for them and you have to provide therapy. Uh, does Kalia ever talk to you about that, about some of the equipment that's needed or what they what they do? There are challenges when it comes to air raid sirens, uh, because the, then then the classes they have to they have to get the kids into the basement um, when the air raid sirens go off. So there there are things. It, the The problem is there's no. It's very difficult to have any schedule. Uh, it's very mm -hmm. difficult to have any structure within the organization because of blackouts, rolling blackouts whether they're planned or whether they're uh, caused by missile strikes, then they're also just the air raid sirens. Even if there's no missiles, the, they're going to go, will force them to go down uh, down to safety. Because he is he's in the computer room, he tells me that they have to kind of just, he, he doesn't really work much because of the electricity that it takes. Mm -hmm. um, computers, and so he, what he'll do is usually turn on the computers for a little bit, if kids come, great. If they don't come, he'll turn them off and, and shut down for the day. They have the rolling blackouts or just plain blackouts that last for hours and hours, and, and they don't know the uncertainty of what, what will be and even uncertainty of whether you'll even be alive the next day. I mean, to me, that's really a tough way to live and certainly a great deal of stress. I, I communicate with Natalia and Dr. P you know, regularly. We have mostly internet, and then I call him on either WhatsApp or Viber, and we have good conversations. But it's like talking to just a very, very close friend, and they're suffering there. It isn't that I feel guilty, but I just wish I could do something about the situation and, and to give comfort in a war that we don't know exactly how it will yet turn out. And that's, that's I mean, I, I think I have the same kind of feeling. It's um, I, I want to do as much as I can. And sometimes when I talk to one of my friends, and her husband, uh, this was this is during Peace Corps. My uh, counterpart, she she helped me basically adjust in the school. Um, her family, her husband, he helped me kind of get settled in a new place. He helped deliver wood so I could chop the wood and kind of taught me how to live in a village house. And uh, he's now on the front. He's on a, a mortar team. So he works on the mortar team and every two to three days he's going out and he, he, he's an assistant to the mortar team. I don't really know how it works, but uh, he goes out and they attack the, uh, the Russians every two to three days. And 
she I talk to her often. She often doesn't really want to talk to me. She wants to listen. She wants me to talk. She wants to tell about my life because it's just too painful for her to talk really about what's going on. Mm-hmm. It's too say how things really are and so so it's very and that's something i learned that sometimes they don't really ukrainians they just want a distraction or they want to hear voices that um, it's hard to talk to her some for me i feel i feel guilty because i can't do much and i want to know more but i also know that i can just talk to her and comfort her and tell her about my life because that that also that brings her joy to hear about what's going on in my life i know that uh, you know people talk about what's happening in ukraine and and the conversation, even in the news, is is greatly on the side or about the politics of it. And, you know, who's going to do this and who's going to supply this and how do we help Ukraine militarily, whatever. But I have been, and it sounds like you too, have been more concerned about the humanitarian aspect of it. We don't know exactly the politics of it, but here are children, here are women, here are elderly, here are people who are freezing and that's the cost of the war that, that that that's the tragic outcome and we're there like the red cross you know for these people you know spiritually and emotionally to help them get through this let's let's go to the day of the invasion february 24th w- were you surprised when the russians attacked what did you think i was i was in shock i remember waking up at about five in the morning and seeing on the news and I still have the picture or a picture in my head of what that news piece looked like. I got online, talked to my parents, and then I really wanted to get coffee, but I didn't have any at home. So I went to McDonald's and it was already closed and it'd be closed for the next what six months. Um, and I kind of just stood on the street listening to the air raid sirens and the voice on the intercom basically saying we're going into martial law, I think is basically we're going into war, uh, basically a state of war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was listening to that, watching people on the streets because the bank, the ATMs, there were just massive lines at the ATMs. I was watching and I just felt this, it, it was in my body. I could feel it physically in my body that there was, it was something was not right and it clearly wasn't right and i but i didn't i i struggled to believe that the invasion would look like it did i everyone everyone in ukraine was surprised by the way the the russians attacked no one believed that they would come down from kiev that they would come down from kharkiv to chernihiv they, they didn't believe that it would be basically the whole country mm-hmm. from ever getting attacked everyone kind of believed that it would be something in the donbass in the donetsk luhansk region regions that they would just be pushing out of there and they thought it would be kind of constricted to that area um i i remember uh, new year's last year and i was already i lived in the center of lviv and fireworks had me on edge uh any loud noises outside of my apartment window uh it was, and there was always loud noises had me on edge it just i felt something was coming but i didn't know no one no one knew and no one expected and i i thought it's not gonna happen like it like it did happen um but then after that i had class in the morning and since i'm psychology studying psychology our teachers are all psychologists and they're all very good at working with the students and calming the students and we talked it was online and we talked kind of about how to prepare the next steps how to uh, what what what's going on and and i still wasn't sure what i was going to do that was that was a mistake on my hand i i didn't really prepare i didn't ignore but i just didn't really prepare mentally or or physically in the sense of having bags ready but my friend texted me my 
one of my classmates, actually two of them texted me offering to leave Lviv, uh, so get out of the town and go with them to their parents, their families uh, in the smaller towns outside of the city just to get out for a while. And so I left with my one of my friends and I stayed with her family uh, for a week and then uh, went to Europe. But it was uh, I went to Europe for a month and then came back to Ukraine for two weeks and then left for good in May. Mm-hmm. So it you was, were there from February 24th into May. Yes. So I was I was there. So I was from, I think, most of March. Uh, I was outside of I was in Europe. I was either in Germany or Poland or Amsterdam. Uh, mm-hmm. So I was I was in those areas for a while because I had friends coming from Europe to visit me. Regardless, they were they were coming to Europe, and so I I was with them for a couple of weeks, and then wanted to go back to Ukraine because I I wanted to go see what the what the what it felt like there, how manageable like life could be for me. And I didn't have a job at this time; I was just a student, and so I went back for two weeks and tried to volunteer, but I, I re- realized quickly that it was very difficult because they didn't need more manpower. Every single Ukrainian was mobilized. Every single person had roles to help with the war. And mm-hmm. I I could have helped, but it would have been, it would have been, I felt more like, because I didn't have the networks that every single Ukrainian has of who to connect with and who to help, how to, and I had some, but not as deeply, uh, not as deep as Ukrainians did. And so I felt that I couldn't, it was very difficult for me to find volunteer opportunities. And if I did, it would be just random ones every day and basically show up at this spot and you never know what the work will be. And you don't know, because sometimes I would show up and they would say, oh, actually we don't need anyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, it's amazing how after a bombing raid and explosions and vehicles being torn up, that the people just get together and make things work again. I'm, I'm amazed and it looks calm in the streets. And one thing that really struck me is that you don't have people pushing, uh, you don't have people grabbing things, looting and that sort of thing. I just didn't see that in the pictures, nor do I hear that from my conversations with people. People really are helping one another. Uh, I know firsthand the stories from Western Ukraine. They are marvelous stories about people really helping one another in a very special way. No, people really, really um, worked hard together. So then you came back to where you live now in Spokane, and you are continuing your studies at the university in Lviv by Zoom, right, or by telecommuting? <laughs> so, so I'm, uh, yeah, I just, I have, um, I just finished my semester, uh, my second to last semester, and um, I hope that I hope to go back to Ukraine. I, it's kind of everything's uncertain. I'd like to finish and graduate there in Ukraine. But it's still it's still tough to say uh, what that will look like and and what the next couple of months so will hold. When is graduation day? It'll be in June. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we certainly will be praying for this whole nightmare to come to an end. So I and then so I have I've just one semester left, and after that I I would like to stay in Ukraine and find more opportunities. And I think there there are plenty of opportunities now um, that. That can be helpful for Ukrainians. That um, I can, um, I can use my talents over there, um, and my connections to help Ukrainians over there. Well, your greatest ability, I feel, is your ability to speak Ukrainian. You mean, people flock around you to, because you you know what's going on, and you can help other people with translation. So, yeah, and that's that's something that's when I say one of my talents. That's really what I'm talking about. Is mm-hmm. is ability to speak with Ukrainians and also 
it, when it comes to translation, you're not just translating words, you're translating meanings mm -hmm. and Ukrainian context is important to understand um, and, and, and be able to also understand American context or European um, uh, speech, for example. Well, I, I'll have to say that I was very impressed when you were interviewed on television as the way you expressed yourself. Uh, you know, like you said, you didn't just speak the words, but you translated or, or you, you spoke your, your feelings and understanding the mindset of those people. Uh, it was awesome. And I just really commend you for that. I'm so glad that not only were you able to go over there and kind of just look at all these interesting things, but you have put your hands to help out and, and to really care for those people. And uh, I could say that, I mean, it's been very different. It's been a very really difficult last nine months or 10 months for Ukrainians, obviously. Um, but for me, it's just uh, it's hard because I feel I'm, I'm in the States and uh, it's very difficult to kind of I'm constantly thinking about Ukraine. It's very much on, on the top of my mind throughout the day. And Americans, um, uh, they have they don't think about that as much. And I, I don't blame them. There's there's plenty of things to think about. And it's very difficult to actually think about uh, people suffering for, for a long period of time. But I just hope that people don't forget uh, that 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 suffering that they saw um, in in january or in february march april may mm -hmm. that hasn't stopped that that what what shocked us a couple months ago isn't shocking us anymore mm -hmm. uh, and i just hope that people don't forget and realize that there there's importance in helping ukraine i know that uh, people get tired of hearing about it in the news and you know i have frequent postings on my facebook page about what's happening in ukraine i have a war blog going on on my lifenets.org website. And I find that you know, people are just weary of that. They don't even go there. They don't want to hear it. And people don't even want presentations about it because they would just rather watch Sunday football <laughs> or do something you know, different and, and not really be connected or wanting to care. It just reminds me so much of what was happening during the Vietnam War when I was you know, younger in high school and, and that... The, every day the news would be about something, some attack or offensive or whatever. You just didn't want to hear it, even though it was important for the people there. So I, I know what it's like. I, I know what it's like. And I know what you're saying. But I'll, I also want to um, I, I want to remind that I think even if you think, even if you're tired, what Ukraine is doing, not just for themselves, but also for the interest of the United States, because Russia is a is a is an enemy, and I think them having a smaller, a much 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 smaller military is a good thing for the United States. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll we'll see, and we'll be praying for a healthy outcome, and that we. I want to go back to Ukraine. I have it in me to go back at least one more time to see our friends there, people that we have worked with and have done so many things with projects through the nonprofit work and foundations that we've worked with, I would just love to go back there again. The last time I was there was in 2016 when I, when you were there. When I was there. I was. Well, is there anything else you would like to say, Colin? I think um, I just want to thank you for having me on. It was, it was a pleasure being able to share my experience, and I hope that, I just hope people don't forget what's going on in Ukraine and that they keep Ukraine in their prayers. 
I think Ukraine has a bright future, but I think there will be a lot of suffering in the in the in the short term before that. Right. Well, thank you very much for sharing your very candid thoughts, very personal thoughts, and you're a very sensitive uh, person, and I appreciated this very much. So, Colin Kubik, thank you very much for being on the Kubik Report podcast. Happy to be here. Thank you. We thank you, our listeners, for joining us here today for the Cubic Report. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please share it and tell your friends about it. We can be found on a variety of platforms, including Podbean, which includes information about this podcast, Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Audible, Pocketcaster, and other podcasting platforms. You can easily find us on any browser address bar by simply typing in the words, The Cubic Report, and there we are. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your impressions and suggestions. So write to us at vcubic at gmail.com, v-k-u-b-i-k at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. Come back soon 